Luther Academy provides additional theological education for our mission partners around the world, specifically pastors who are asking for additional education but do not have the necessary resources in their own church bodies. By donating to Luther Academy today, you will be supplying food, housing, books, professors, and travel for Lutheran pastors who attend our conferences. To learn more about Luther Academy and how you can donate today, visit lutheracademy.com, lutheracademy.com. Bad of the bone, bad of the bone, bad, 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 bad of the bone. How should we understand original sin and actual sin and the Christian struggle against sin? How is all of that related to the nature of man himself? Because to be human is not in and of itself to be sinful. Sin is a deficit in man. That's part of a definition of original sin. But how does that all work out, especially when the Christian struggles and continues to struggle against sin? Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. Joining us to talk about the fall into sin and original sin, Dr. Detlef Scholz. He's professor of pastoral ministry and missions, dean of graduate studies, and director of international studies at Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana. He's author of the new book in the Confessional Lutheran Dogmatic Series titled Theological Anthropology and Sin. Dr. Scholz, welcome back. Thank you. Thank you. You say the only correct understanding of human life and practice is one that affirms an existence under God. What do you mean by that? Well, if you go with the scriptural evidence, you would see that human life is always one receiving from God everything needed for one's existence, both spiritually and physically. So to be without a God under whom you live uh, would be an absurd proposition. Danger being there that, uh, as we see from certain biblical uh, narratives that a man wants to elevate himself then as God and uh, affirm his own existence and also not willing to submit his uh, himself under authority. So the danger here, as Pascal would say, is that man then turns to himself and follows his own inclinations and pleasures without reflection and concern and making himself only happy for the moment. I think in that regard, we want to see our life as one uh, receiving from God everything we need for our life, spiritually and physically, and then out of that comes the service to the neighbor and as a response to what God has done and given to us. It's very important then to follow that line of thought really also today, you know, and see ourselves all not denying God's existence, but affirming it and then constructing our life under his authority. What is the biblical view of man? Well, there are three things I would say if you look at the biblical view. The first thing you would have to say is the origin of man, you know, where he's coming from. Then there's uh, the relational aspect. He's to consider himself in relation to God and his neighbor and to himself, of course. And then there's this idea of purpose, you know, Bestimmung, as we say in German, as theologians would say. So from Genesis 1, 26 to 28, and in Genesis 2, we see that man is a creation of God. He is standing in a relation to God who has given him authority 
to procreate, to subjugate and rule the earth and all the rest of creation. So he becomes really uh, God's representative here on earth and stands above in all other animal life and as the crown of creation. So uh, God endowed him also with a reason, a soul, and given him a breath of life. Everything that uh, he is and also in terms of how he leads his existence is one guided, supported, and directed by God himself. Why is it insufficient to view man as merely a rational animal? The definition of man as a rational being goes back to antiquity, and that is uh, something that Christianity has taken on and also understands man as an exceptional being here on earth, endowed with rationality. And Luther, in his Disputation Concerning Man in 1536, even praises reason as the author from which all uh, things originate, like architecture and everything else that uh, humans need for life. So there is, in our understanding, a appraisal of reason. But if I think about it uh, more and more, um, I bring in uh, the ethical concern here, where I would say that uh, it's somewhat reductionistic. It looks at man only in terms of the mind, but there are many other aspects to the human being. I think he's a multi-layered being, you know, that has a lot going with him to embrace also other things that he is uh, structurally, you know, he's communicative, he's a person, he has a soul, he is a moral being, he has also the ability to create things. So that's one of the things to say here. It's a, a multi-layered aspect that we need to be considering here when we talk of humans, and especially of uh, in view of the young and the old. If you take it uh, that humans are a rational being, what about uh, those that are less intelligent? So it can lead to degrading humans who are not able to display rational powers as we would like to see. That would be one thing. And Luther actually also said, if you look at the devil, he's the one who has the most rational powers. So uh, go and see a human being holistically more than just the use of his reason. What are the shortcomings of seeing man as a mere brute? The mere brute idea comes from Hobbes, you know, and uh, I think what we need to say to that is that negative view of humanity is denying the proper status of man in society, in creation, the ability to form and uh, create his own life. So we have a positive understanding when it comes to the civil, social, sphere of human life that he is able to use his reason and is not just there to devour himself or others and wanting to come to the top by his own feet and destroy everyone else you know of course there are the egotistical elements of human life making oneself first above all others but i do think that um, making us mere brutes is denying the fact that uh, we as as lutherans contributors to God's order and his design through our vocation. And there is a human ability to follow 
one's life according to certain principles and not just be uh, totally against them. How should we rightly understand the image of God? That's a question you can uh, speak on uh, for, for hours, I think. One could say, of course, that the text that, that comes to surface here is Genesis one twenty six to 28. And there God said, let us make man in our own image. And so uh, in, in the history of church's theology and the teaching, the image of God has really been understood in a two-stage or in a dual sense, you could say. On the one hand, it's um, understood to be one that never leaves a human being, regardless as to whether he's a Christian or not. And so that image is kind of structurally, ontologically defined as something man has in his possession. And the tendency in our society is always to refer to that, to say, oh, we are all in God's image, and for that reason we uh, need to protect human life and so forth. But uh, what you also have to understand is that there is an understanding of an image in theology that talks about it in the narrow sense. And biblically speaking, that's very important because the image, truest image, is Jesus Christ. He is the one who replaces an image that we have lost. So the loss that we have incurred here through the fall is the moral righteousness, the holiness of knowledge and thought, and the relationship with God. That is gone. That has fallen away. And that needs to be replaced by the image of Christ. So in the end, we need to be clear that the image of God is one that humans have lost and that it is Christologically restored through hearing God's word and being forgiven and then replaced in the status of God's children. So I think that's basically where Luther comes in, saying that after the fall, the image has been turned to an image of God, to an image of the devil, Diaboli and that only restitution can take place through hearing and receiving Christ's righteousness, or him as our image. How should we rightly understand how man is comprised, body, spirit, soul? I would say that our human body, soul, and spirit are in unison. That means that if we talk about body and soul, there has been a tendency in Christianity to divide the two to such an extent that they don't communicate or relate to each other. You can say that asceticism was born out of that idea, neoplatonic thought. The body is capturing the soul or keeping it captive, and so it needs to be freed up, and so the best thing is to deny bodily existence. I mean, Gnosticism today is also somewhat treating the bodily existence with disdain at times. What we need to say is that the soul and body work together. So I'd prefer, as some scholars would say, to talk about the insouled body. And looking at the state of us humans today, there's a lot of um, psychosomatic illnesses that are occurring and always have actually been occurring with human beings. That if there is a spiritual state uh, becomes a problem, it can actually infiltrate the health of a body, you know, and so 
the two interrelate very closely, and so I would not say to create a division. Now, soul has generally been understood as a term that relates to the personality, psyche of a human being. So spirit is more kind of the attunement towards transcendency and, of course, attunement away from transcendency, depending on the big S or small s. So uh, I think that uh, if you uh, read uh, the Lutheran literature on this, you would probably say we have come down to a dual division of body and soul, and the spirit resides in the soul. Dr. Detlef Schultz is our guest. We're talking about the fall into sin and original sin. When we come back, how did the ancient pagans understand the fallenness of man? I like that we get to talk about these things and we hit it from a different angle, but because we love each other and because we have the same religious views, you know, church is the centerpiece of our lives. Worship is the centerpiece of our lives. Molly Hemingway speaking at the Issues Etc. Making the Case Conference. So when we are just going back and forth on politics, it's really not that important relative to the things that do in, matter. And in all safe. seriousness, if you do not have someone in your life that you both completely trust and regularly engage in arguments with, you're doing it wrong. You can watch and listen to journalists Mark and Molly Hemingway's Q&A and all of the presentations from the 2023 Making the Case Conference for a contribution of $300 by Labor Day. We'll send you links to download a podcast or watch a video stream. Order today at issuesetc.org or by check. Make your check payable to Issues Etc. and send it to Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. For sinners only. You're listening to Issues Etc. The days are shortening and it's soon back to school. Ad Crucem has beautiful posters and art to adorn your home school or classroom. And we print them right here in our Colorado workshop. Come and see our various prints by Cronach, Holbein, Bonat, Tintoretto and Caravaggio. Stock up on our daily prayer posters, creed posters and other beautiful Christ-focused artworks. Visit adcrucem.com. That's A-D-C-R-U-C-E-M dot com. Register today. The 2023 Lutherans for Life National Conference is October 11th through the 13th at the Holiday Inn Cincinnati Airport in Erlanger, Kentucky. The conference includes visits to the Ark Encounter and Creation Museum. Online registration is open now with early bird pricing at lutheransforlife.org conference. Lutherans for Life, equipping Lutherans and their neighbors to be gospel-motivated voices for life. lutheransforlife.org Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. We're talking with Dr. Detlef Schultz, author of a new book in the Confessional Lutheran Dogmatic series titled Theological Anthropology and Sin, about the fall into sin and original sin. Dr. Schultz, how did the ancient pagans understand the fallenness of man? Well, the fallenness of man has been, of course, a tragedy. In many ways, you could say the Greek tragedies are full of, of stories as to how uh, human beings have fallen, Daedalus and Icarus. That example comes to mind, of course, but all the other 
tragedies of Greek authors. And there, I mean, it's basically a misconduct on the side of a human being and then uh, the reaction of the god against that through punishment or any other form that would come that god would put in place so sin is as i would say is definitely something that's gone wrong on the side of the human being causing a reaction from god to either punish and uh, restore uh, the relationship again and uh, if you go then to uh, Christianity then and and see it it becomes something of a greater depth you know to sin it's not just something that is being done but it is also something that creates a state we are in a sin we find ourselves in it and then uh, express whatever it does to us in actual deeds what kind of debates historically have Christians had about the nature of man's fallenness the uh, debates are ongoing. I wouldn't say have had debates, but they are still ongoing. And I mean, there are various denominations looking at it differently. So I would say that the debate is really and has always been about the relationship of nature and grace. In other words, nature is the question of what does man bring ontologically as a human being to the table in his relationship with God? Is there anything good? And what then must God add to that, what man brings to the table, you know? And so we would call that grace. God comes forward with something and supplements it or adds something onto it. So the question really becomes then talking about, well, how deep then is nature fallen? And this, of course, has been uh, attempted in different ways, the answers. We know Pelagianism, where it says, you know, man is in possession still of natural powers. He can uh, attune himself to God by his own strength. That was condemned, of course, dismissed by the church. And then some thought, well, we'll do a subtle version of this. Man does something, but God will have to respond and provide his grace known as semi-Pelagianism. Today we have uh, Arminianism abounding everywhere, saying that, well, God does the first initial kick, so to speak, for you to engage him, but then he leaves it all to your own will. So it's uh, a kind of a cooperation between God and man. And so these discussions are ongoing, I think, you know, and as Lutherans, justified by uh, grace through faith is clearly trying to correct all these versions that are out there telling us that uh, the nature is completely fallen entirely corrupt and cannot bring anything to the table but relies totally on god's grace in that vein how did the lutheran reformers understand sin in the fall well, I would say that you should go to the first commandment to answer that question. The first commandment is requiring that we fear, love, and trust God. And that relationship and those abilities to fear, to trust, and to love God are falling away. And so sin is really the first breaking of the relationship between man and God. And then, of course, transpires into relations humans have with each other and there of course uh, the relationships are broken also 
So it's uh, trying to start uh, first by defining it as uh, something that you have in terms of relationship with God as a broken one, which then infiltrates all aspects of life and property and your neighbor, your family and your wife and marriage and so forth. What then is original sin? How should we understand it? Original sin is, as a term perhaps already indicates, coming from somewhere. It has an origin. And it points us back to our creation. It points us back to Adam and Eve, to Genesis 3, to disobedience against God's command not to eat from this forbidden fruit. And in spite of that command, Adam and Eve go through with it and actually do break God's command and therefore are punished. So we talk about Adam's sin. But because humanity is so linked up with Adam, that sin that uh, he committed transpires and also goes over all of humanity in terms of condemnation. Condemnation that then eventually leads to corruption and then also to actual doing that what we should not be doing. So original sin then I would say is first of all a loss, a defect, deprivation of the righteousness that we had originally, the knowledge of God, the holiness. And then it is also in addition, this is important what Lutherans have always added, it is also an effect, namely an active component to it that uh, is called concupiscence, that desire to continue to sin throughout your entire life. So these two aspects I would point out, both a defect but then also an effect that incites to sin because of this desire that remains with us. How does the Christian then struggle against sin? Sin is daily occurs daily. So it cannot be uh, pushed aside in the life. There's no progression of holiness, so to speak, in terms of our own morality. Christians have and continue to be engaged in, in doing sinful acts and have to therefore always continuously be mindful of sin in their life. And the whole worship setting is arranged around that. We confess our sins in the beginning of the service, that we have sinned in thought, word, and deed. So we are not morally righteous in God's sight, even though we receive passively his forgiveness, that is Christ, and the righteousness that he has given to us then becomes one that should be expressed in our daily lives. And there the problem arises that we cannot fulfill all the commands and what the Lord wants from us. So uh, Luther himself, you know, of course, coined the, the term being sinner and saint at the same time. You are saint because you have received 100% forgiveness from Christ, his righteousness. But as we express our righteousness morally in the world, we fail dismally. And so we are on the path of doing good things, but at the same time, we are always constantly struggling against the setbacks of daily sin. He uses the example of a house under construction. The house is f 
not yet finished, but it's on its way to become finished. Or a patient, you know, who's treated by a doctor, he is uh, being treated and he's on his way to becoming fully healed. That's kind of the understanding of what we call the moral righteousness in which we fail daily. We have the Holy Spirit with us, and only because of his power and, and his influence in our daily lives can we overcome sin and not be ruled by it and can actually fight against it and resist it. But it is all due to the Holy Spirit's power that we give credit to, not to our own abilities. What has original sin done to the will of a man? The will of man is corrupted. This is, again, as I've said, the debate of nature and grace. Theologians have had always an interest to make will the key component of what is a human being, you know, next to reason. And so uh, the will is kind of the uh, motor of one's own doing and action. So it is affected by sin in such a way that is no longer able to attune itself or to direct its attention towards God and be credited for anything. So it's basically total corruption to such a degree that one would have to say the will is dead when it comes to establishing relationships spiritually with God. Of course, the will is still active around the world in terms of civil righteousness and working in society, but uh, when it comes to the relationship with God, we have a very clear understanding that when it comes to uh, sin and what it has done to us, it has uh, taken away the uh, ability to be spiritually inclined towards God. We can only rely 100% on God coming to us and being the one who initiates and actually fulfills our salvation. We're talking about the fall into sin and original sin with Dr. Detlef Schultz. On the other side, we'll turn to actual sin. Luther Academy provides additional theological education for our mission partners around the world, specifically pastors who are asking for additional education but do not have the necessary resources in their own church bodies. By donating to Luther Academy today, you will be supplying food, housing, books, professors, and travel for Lutheran pastors who attend our conferences. To learn more about Luther Academy and how you can donate today, visit lutheracademy.com. LutherAcademy.com Simultaneously saint and sinner, you're listening to Issues Etc. Have you ever pondered the limits of archaeology? What can it tell us? What can't it tell us? Well, Dr. David Adams takes up this topic in the September issue of The Lutheran Witness, where he discusses the fact that archaeology ultimately doesn't prove anything. It simply gives us the facts that have to be interpreted. To learn more, pick up your copy of The Lutheran Witness, visit cph.org witness or the Lutheran Witness website, witness.lcms.org to learn more. The Lutheran Witness, interpreting the world from a Lutheran perspective.
Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. We're talking about the fall into sin and original sin with Dr. Detlef Schultz. He is professor of pastoral ministry and missions, dean of graduate studies, and director of international studies at the Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana, and author of the new book in the Confessional Lutheran Dogmatic series titled Theological Anthropology and Sin. Happy birthday to the Marine Corps Reserve, established on this date in 1916. LCMS Ministry to the Armed Forces supports all Lutheran Church Missouri Synod chaplains who serve in the reserves on active duty, the National Guard, Civil Air Patrol, and Coast Guard Auxiliary. Find out more about their service at lcms.org slash armed forces, lcms.org slash armed forces. Dr. Schultz, we talked earlier about original sin. How should we understand actual sin? Well, actual sin is that what comes out of the original sin of being concupiscent. In other words, of having, as we would look at Romans 7, and that's a very key text here, Romans seven fourteen to 25, where Paul describes himself as somebody who's doing what he should not be doing. And that what he should do, he's not doing. And that is precisely describing actual sin in our lives. We cannot control or do that on a regular basis that we plan on doing. But we have always been susceptible to sinning. And so actual sin is something that occurs both in thought, through word, and in deed. It therefore comes as a very important aspect to us reflecting on it through hearing the Ten Commandments, through knowing from others being told who we are rather than thinking about ourselves as good people, you know, able to do whatever good is needed, but rather that we can see objectively from reflecting with God's word, and that's basically law, and then asking for forgiveness through the gospel. Daily sin is actually doing something against God's will and also not only against him then, but also towards others and toward oneself. One can neglect one's own body and spiritual health as well. Compare and contrast Christianity's view of sin with that of other religions. I would say that Christianity is um, understanding sin more as a relational concept that is broken. And so it is uh, pointing to, to sinful acts that are committed, surely, but it is deeper than that. It is a destruction of the uh, relationship and that we are having this incessant, deep desire for sin. So it's more than just an actual deed committing against this or that command. It's a state of being, so to speak, for Christians. And therefore, sin is something that needs to be repaired from the outside by God himself, rather than you I'm speaking about other religions now, rather than you being encouraged, appealing to your own will and your own resources within you to be able to do and re-correct that what you've done wrong. It never really comes then to um, sin to an understanding above and beyond just what you do against that what the Lord has put before you in terms of commands. And it never really goes to the depth of the matter itself that we humans are by nature sinful. How has sin manifested itself in our society and our culture today? 
It's a long, long uh, story, this. I would say that it, of course, is something that human beings are struggling with daily, but it is also important to highlight sin in very actual and real terms. I think for that reason, we need to speak out clearly, you know, to what uh, society is doing in its manifold ways of going against God himself. Remember what sin really is. It's failing to keep the first commandment and the abandonment of God, the loss of church membership, the turning away from God to find other spiritual treatments and enjoyments are all signifiers of sin and trying to regulate your own life according to your own desires and will is uh, then replaced becomes as the replacement of uh, leaving God uh, and seeking one's own desires becomes hedonistic so I would say uh, also the atomicized you know understanding of a human individualistic seeking one's own desire, forgetting what the neighbor needs. I would also add to the actual treatment of the unborn, of course, of life itself as a gift from God, and the body as it is also to be received from God, that one treats it with respect. Affirm your createdness. Don't try to change who you are. Accept that, what God has given you. That's especially important also in terms of the binary structures of society, namely male or female, that those cannot be abandoned as much and as hard as you try. There's a certain reality and structure to humanity given, laid upon us that we cannot abandon and should not. And if we do, we are working against what God designed for creation. Luther also mentioned one important term called incurvature. It's kind of the idea that man is curving towards himself, more navel-gazing, more wanting to feed his own belly, desires that he has and wants to have fulfilled. This incurvature needs to be taken away and redirected towards God so that the selfishness that humans are pursuing for themselves is replaced by a more outward orientation of praise, worship, and service to God and the neighbor. Finally, how does Lutheran theology present both a biblical and a realistic view of man and his sinful condition? Well, remember what we said in the beginning, that there are two ways of interpreting man. And I speak to that in the book up front. There is this angelic status that many humans try to pursue. They want to uh, be more than what they can actually become. They want to become immortal bodies, you know. They want to create a a human after humanity, you know, a kind of post-human individual, avoiding illnesses and sicknesses and so forth. This utopianism that comes with that is probably a problem when facing the reality of sin. And that means that you cannot and may not, or you you cannot reach uh, and elevate yourself to an angelic status that abandons entirely that what we are as human beings, both sinful yet created by God and responsible towards God. So uh, on the one side, this optimistic, overly utopian understanding of humanity striving towards an inner-worldly heaven, so to speak, creating it here on earth. On the other hand, humans 
trying to uh, portray themselves as beasts and becoming beasts and not seeing themselves as important supporters of God's guardianship over creation, continual creation through our vocation service that we are helping and doing things here on earth that God requires us to do and has put before us. Therefore, also realizing that God has given us a structure, a family, the binary structure of male and female, and that these need to be upheld. But within these structures that we are given, there's also a sinful component aspect to it that we will always have to work against in order to keep peace and tranquility here on life. Dr. Detlef Schultz is Professor of Pastoral Ministry and Missions, Dean of Graduate Studies and Director of International Studies at Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana. He's author of the new book in the Confessional Lutheran Dogmatic series titled Theological Anthropology and Sin. You can purchase this new book on the Talk On Demand archives page at issuesetc.org. And to learn more about all of the volumes in the Confessional Lutheran Dogmatic series, visit lutheracademy.com, lutheracademy.com. Dr. Schultz, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I enjoyed it. We will be looking into the propers surrounding the parable of the Good Samaritan in Luke chapter 10 with Pastor Peter Bender as we look forward to Sunday morning according to the one-year lectionary next. Listen weekday afternoons to Pastor Todd Wilkin and guests on Issues Etc. Issues Etc. is a listener-supported program. Your financial support is vital for the continuation and expansion of this worldwide outreach. Our mailing address, Issues Etc., P.O. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. You can also donate at our website, issuesetc.org. Issues Etc. is a production of LPR, Lutheran Public Radio.